welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with your hosts, Big Willie and the Samurai, a.k.a. the Big Swinning Cock, and the man that chops him off, bringing the class to trash. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Here we are, episode number four. Am I right about that, Will? Uh, yes, sir. Lucky number four. Lucky number four. Here we go. Yeah, it sounds uh, sounds better every time I say it. Next episode four, and next episode five. It just gets better and better every time we say it. Can't wait to say, like, you know, 55 or 60 or something. By then, we should be seasoned veterans, and uh, any kind of slight technical difficulties we have, we should be able to... Uh, uh, quell them. I think that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. That, that's pretty accurate. All right, and we'll cut the intro down a little bit here. All right, so here we are, another week, another episode. Uh, I know we wanted to go over a little bit more about the uh, Pop Syndicate board, so I'm going to kick that over to you. Uh, sure. Uh, we are on the Pop Syndicate boards now. Uh, Stefan was kind enough to fire it up for us. And they can be found at www.popsyndicate.com slash forums. Uh, if you just scroll down, you'll see it's aptly titled uh, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. You know, any, anything you guys want to bring up in there in terms of movies you'd like us to cover, comments. We usually have a thread up about each episode we're going to cover. So, yeah, by all means, I mean, the more people that can get involved with this, the better. Because you and I had always said, Sammy, that we wanted it to be or, and have a very communal feel. So hopefully this will really help us do that. Right, right. Yeah, we want to get that community up and rolling. And it, it takes a while to get it going and stuff. But we do want... Anybody that's uh, new out there that hasn't uh, signed up at Pop Syndicate or anything like that, we want you guys to uh, get involved over there and sign up. You know, we got a lot of the old mainstays over there, a lot of great people over there. Uh, I know we've gotten a lot of good posts from uh, Naked Eskimo and Barbarella Cult and uh, Matsuzaka. Yeah, Matsuzaka and a lot of the other, you know, regulars and stuff. And those guys are great, but we also want to get some new blood in there, too. So hopefully we'll be uh, getting some new faces in there. And, you know, the more the merrier. I'm sure uh, Stefan would like more people to get in there. Oh, for sure. And just one thing I want to say, a lot of people I know, even myself, before I got involved with message boards, it's almost a little intimidating because you think, you know, people are going to be very snotty and look down on you if you don't know something as much in terms of film. It's it's actually a really good community over there where, you know, you don't get all these uh, really snooty elitists. I mean, you know, you can feel free to ask, oh, what was that movie Bella Lugosi was in? Or I don't know, whatever it is you want to ask. Um, so don't feel uh, overwhelmed by the fact that it's a message board. I mean, it's other people that love film and they just want to share the love. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, I know me, when I went over there at first for the uh, Cinema Diabolica boards, I was a little intimidated, but I will say that the uh, the community over there is great. If, it is, if there is an argument, it's typically a very healthy argument and uh, no bad blood after it's over. So, And I've had quite a few over there on the boards, especially pertaining to uh, Star Wars movies, which I'm not going to get into on this show, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, that's 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 the great thing about that community. It builds uh, a community. It builds friendship, which is great. I mean, I, I mean, I met Bill from outside the cinema over there. You know, I met uh, F13 from Sim Diabolic over there. I now consider those guys friends of mine. And uh, I met you on the Pop Syndicate board, and now we're friends. So uh, there you go. I mean, uh, creates friendships, and it builds better lives. Exactly. <laughs> More well-rounded lives. There we go. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and go over what we're going to cover today in today's episode. Uh, today we're going to cover Sammo Hung's Eastern Condors. I just love saying Sammo Hung. I wish my last name was Hung. <laughs> Absolutely. 
My name is Samurai Hung from 1987, uh, and we'll go over more about what that's about in just a few, and then we're also going to cover the, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say this word because I'm sure most people that are going to listen to this are going to agree, the classic John Carpenter film, uh, The Fog, which is just something we always wanted to cover. So we'll talk about it in uh, in glowing form, I'm sure, and I'm hoping everybody will enjoy what we have to say about it. Uh, that's about all I got for the opening. Uh, I guess we're ready to go to the first break. Uh, yeah, I just want to add very, very quickly, I want to apologize on behalf of both of us. Um, I'd like to apologize on behalf of uh, both of us for forgetting to mention what we were covering this week in the previous episode. So we'll try and avoid that in the future and and keep you guys uh, well informed in advance. Yeah, the technical difficulties at the end of last week's episode with the Skype thing kind of kicked everything out of uh, whack for us. So hopefully we won't have any of those episodes this time. All right, so we'll be back after this short break. What's up, kiddies? You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the only show crazy enough to tackle the Brian Bosworth classic Stone Cold. Stuff from the uh, hives there from Sweden, so a little bit of a dedication for being on the uh, pop syndicate boards. <laughs> so, Big Willie, are we ready to review our first film? Our first film today, uh, yes, sir. Let's do it. All right, I'll let you go ahead since you picked this film. I'll let you go ahead and introduce it, and we'll go from there. Okay, uh, the first film we're going to cover, as you mentioned in the intro, is Samuel Hung's Eastern Condors. Um, this is a film that I think a lot of other martial arts fans. If you're you know, a really hardcore martial arts fan, you're probably at least familiar with, um, but I don't think it gets enough love in terms of people that like martial arts films, so I thought it'd be an interesting one to cover. I mean, it kind of takes us out of uh, the usual setting of the temple and, and uh, so forth. Um, so I'll go ahead and read the, the summary of it. I've had a chance to read this ahead of time, so if it's completely wrong... Okay, a motley group of Asian prisoners, a motley crew, if you will... Um, of Asian prisoners held in the U.S. are given one chance for freedom. They are to go deep into Vietnam and destroy a secret depot of missiles that the U.S. left behind during the pullout. The group, led by Lieutenant Lam and convict Tung, hook up with the trio of female freedom fighters and a happy-go-lucky martial artist named Rat. The entire group is captured by the VC because one of them is a double agent, but they escape, cross an uncrossable bridge, and get to the secret base just ahead of the VC. It's up to Tung, Rat, and the others to fight the VC's leader, a bizarre giggling man 
who's lightning fast with martial arts. Of course, sort of a summary. What uh, I guess I'll kick it over to you since I suggested this film. Okay, all right, where to start with this movie? Okay, uh, I don't know where really to start, but let's go ahead and start with the fact that, uh, man, there's a lot of characters in this movie, and they really throw them on the screen quick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow, I mean, it took me a while to figure out who was who, and everybody has a nickname like Onion Head, and uh, I think one of them's name's Potato Head. Yeah, and there's Rat, and there's Grandpa. And yeah, Grandpa's played by a very popular person nowadays, which we'll talk about a little later. Yeah, but yeah a lot of characters very quickly. I mean, obviously, my eyes immediately go to Sammo Hung, because I know Sammo Hung, and I've seen some of his stuff before. And, of course, you know, he has great charisma, and he very he very much fills up the screen, uh, not just with his physical physique, but with, uh, you know, he, he very much, you know, he meet your eyes are immediately drawn to him. Uh, so that was who I was basically letting lead me through this movie is uh, Sammo Hung. Uh, let me say that this movie really sets itself up pretty well in the beginning. It pretty much tells you what kind of movie it's going to be because uh, there's a scene where, uh, and I forget the character's name, but I guess it's the lieutenant you were talking about. Uh, I don't know the actor's name, but he, he, they can't get the American flag up. They're saluting and they're having trouble with this American flag. And it's kind of funny and uh, and a little goofy and stuff. And then they go and they and they get a report out from some other some other people. And then they come back and they're still having trouble getting this American flag up. So the lieutenant decides to help him out. And instead of just, you know, trying to figure out the problem he decides he's going to throw his hat all the way to the top of the flagpole which you know of course lands dead center right on it and then he decides to climb up the flagpole fix it put his hat back on and slide down and that's pretty much what kind of movie this kind of turns out to be i mean it's kind of happy-go-lucky at least i thought it was going to be happy-go-lucky almost all the way through and then the drama starts kicking in and i'm not going to mention you know who who gets killed or whatnot but it, it doesn't take long for this big cast to start uh disintegrating right in front of our eyes i mean i think it takes like what maybe 10 minutes maybe 15 minutes and now two or three people are already de- are already dead so yeah, I think within 15 minutes, um, we start to see... And again, this is sort of a Dirty Dozen type film, in case you didn't yes. kind of pick up that vibe. But yeah, you start to see people getting dispatched very quickly. Well, yeah, but it is a Dirty Dozen, because what they do is they pull these guys out of prison, or, you know, whatever it is, a military prison or whatever, and basically offer them freedom and then money as well, right, if they can do this mission? Yep, $200,000 and a complete pardon if they can pull this mission. And these guys are all lifers. In fact, they go over their... Their dossiers, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, such and such character convicted of uh, murder and armed robbery, sentenced right. X amount of years. So they kind of introduce the characters all that way uh, with varying degrees of badassery uh, before they, they sort of, you know, sweeten the deal by offering them this uh, large sum of money and complete freedom if they can pull off this mission after being trained right right yeah and so that's what it ends up being it ends up being this mixture of comedy and drama that uh in my opinion didn't really it doesn't really mix very well i mean it doesn't it's not it's not too bad but then again let me say that you know i'm not completely familiar i'm probably i mean i have my experience in kung fu films and chinese films asian film but not nearly as much as you do so i'm not really still attuned sometimes to you know the cultures over there and the way they shoot movies and stuff and this does have some of those uh those kung fu moments in films where you see where somebody gets kicked in the stomach or kicked in the head and then they decide to rub their stomach and rub their head in good old jackie chan fashion you know like oh that really hurt you know and so they let you know that it really hurt it does have some of those moments in there but in between those moments there's moments of uh you know serious there's some savagery in this movie really Really, I mean, there's some some blood and some uh, some really good kills and things like that. I mean, there's some really good stuff as far as you know mixing it and stuff. But I mean, it, it just felt kind of 
it felt like it wanted to be two different movies. I don't know if you got that vibe or not. Yeah, I did, and it's a good thing you brought that up because I think a lot of times some things uh, in terms of cultural tastes, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, don't translate well. Um, a lot of times you'll get very broad kind of overacting. Uh, you get broad comedy, physical comedy, like you mentioned, with the head rubbing or, or the, the stomach rubbing. And further to that, you get sometimes a lot of very cheesy, sappy melodrama that's just very, very overdone. And it's it's very common in, in Hong Kong films of the time. In fact, it's very common right up until now with some films that I've seen. So I'm not a fan of that at all. I mean, it's one of those things that I've kind of learned to take the good with the bad. And I mean, if the good, and in this case, in my opinion, it does, the good definitely outweighs the bad. Um, right. I'm, I'm willing to overlook it. But it's there, and I think you know you, you kind of have to accept it and get past it because uh, there's a, it does offer a lot. But if you can't get past that, you're going to be in trouble because it is, uh, it's, not, it's certainly not for everyone. And I don't think it's something that Western audiences will take too well to unless they're familiar with, with uh, movies from that. Yeah, let me say that even though you know, I say that like it's a bad thing, if you love Asian films, you're not going to, like you said, you're not going to have a problem with these these moments. You're going to kind of know that these are the kind of moments that are in there. You're going to kind of know these melodramatic, uh, over-the-top uh, emotional scenes. You're going to know these things. I mean, I was not stunned by anything I saw because I was, after I saw a couple moments of those kinds of things happening, I was like, okay, well, I see what kind of movie this is trying to be now. Uh, you know, I got used to it, and I settled in. And by settling in, let me go to the next point I got on my notes, which is the stunt work in this movie is fucking amazing. I mean, there is some really, really great stuff in here. And evidently, I've read that uh, they decided to go full contact with the uh, the martial arts in this film, and it's pretty it's pretty obvious that this is full contact, because people are taking some serious hits. Oh, they are. And, and that's the thing you really have to love about... Hong Kong cinema, especially this was the 80s were really the golden age of Hong Kong cinema. I mean, you had John Woo at the height of his powers, you had Jackie Chan, you had Sammo Hong, you had a lot of other lesser known uh, entities doing their thing. And you have to commend the actors because a lot of times in these films, the actors were trained in martial arts and they did a lot of their own stunts. So, I mean, yeah, the stunt work in this, as, as per usual uh, for Hong Kong films, is, is just first class. It's uh, it's excellent. Yeah, it's very good. There's actually one scene though that, as great a stunt as it is, I was like, I don't understand why the guy did it. And I think it was uh, how do you say his name? Yun Bao? Is that how you say his name? Yep, Yun Biao. Yep. Uh, he uh, Yun Biao. He uh, he climbs up into a tree and he ties a vine around his ankle and decides to jump down on somebody. It just seems like a lot of work to take a guy out, but it was an impressive stunt, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, much like we had sort of touched on this with Raiders of Atlanta, sometimes it's sort of the uh, throw everything in, including the kitchen sink kind of filmmaking, <laughs> where you know things don't always make sense. Um, you're going to get things that are strictly done for visual flair or you know just to add something visually to the film. Um because I think it's like, well, anyone can jump out of a tree. Let me tie a vine around my leg and swing down. You know, it's it's sort of that kind of uh, mentality with filmmaking, I think, that uh, enable them to do that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it really is um, that kind of filmmaking. But, yeah, I agree. It, you know, looking at this film, you can't look at it literally and think, well, that's preposterous. Because, quite honestly, of course it is. But so is a lot of stuff that happens. And you just have to kind of buckle yourself in and enjoy the ride. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is not saving Private Ryan-type uh, war action. I mean, this is a uh, preposterous Hong Kong uh, stunt work, you know, very uh, Jackie Chan-esque uh, 
type. If you're familiar with, and most Americans, I would say, are probably more familiar with Jackie Chan type films than uh, than a lot of other kung fu stuff. Although I'm sure there's quite a few out there that are familiar with other stuff. But I mean, it has that Jackie Chan '80s feel. As a matter of fact, if he would have been in this movie, he would have fit in just fine because uh, that's the feel it had. I mean, uh, I know I read somewhere that Samuel Hung really slimmed up for this movie so he could do a lot of the stuff that uh, you know he doesn't normally do, which is a lot of flying kicks and things like that. And he did really good. I mean, Samuel's a uh, like I say, he's very charismatic. His karate has always been more, uh, or his martial arts, I should say, karate might be too broad a term, but his, it's always been very punch-centric and low kicks, but uh, that's because he's kind of a big man. Oh, he's, he's uh, yeah, he's very big. For those of you that aren't familiar with Sam Hung, I don't know, what would you guess he weighs? Maybe 250, 260? Yeah, he's up there. He's he's above 250. I don't have any doubts about that. Oh, yeah, he's a big guy, and, and he moves a lot of times like Jackie Chan, and that's that's what's so impressive about him. Yeah, I mean, he's very athletic for a guy his size, and uh, some people might be familiar. He was in uh, Enter the Dragon briefly. He was kind of a, the chubby guy. I think Bruce Lee was fighting at one point, like some training match or something. I know he's in there at some point, but it's been a while since I watched Enter the Dragon. But Yeah, me too. That being, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I that being like, that. you know, the, the gateway drug to kung fu films for most of us. So Oh, it was. It, it definitely was for me. I think four years years old i'd i'd seen it and i was hooked ever since that was definitely the gateway drug so a lot of the things about this movie uh it being a war film and stuff it was a mixture of martial arts uh that's something i hadn't seen before so it was very entertaining in that respect uh although i do have to say that uh, i know uh one of the descriptions you gave me was somebody had said or you had heard or read somewhere that it was uh you know martial arts mixed with the deer hunter was mixed with the dirty dozen i can definitely see the dirty dozen similarities i can definitely see those the martial arts obviously i can see the deer hunter thing, the only thing I really see about the deer hunter stuff is, of course, the red headband that Samo Hung wears, which yep. I think Christopher Walken or Robert De Niro, one of the other, wears in the deer hunter. I think it's De Niro. I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I've seen the deer hunter. And at some point, they get they get caught, and they are in a water cage, uh, which has just got to be miserable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it just seems miserable to me. And there's a scene of uh, Russian roulette, but the difference is, is that the Russian roulette here is played by two children. And they're using the prisoners for uh, for the game. So it's pretty disturbing stuff, and uh, it doesn't hold back on the brutality there. But uh, that's really the only similarities between Deer Hunter and this film. I mean, that's kind of a saying it's like Deer Hunter. Well, other than the fact that the death scenes are very over-the-top and, and melodramatic, like they kind of are in Deer Hunter. But that's really the only similarities I saw. So Yeah, I think you're right. But I think the reason for that, I think, is because... When most people think of the deer hunter, immediately the first scene that comes to mind is the Russian roulette scene. So I think that's probably why people say that. And you're right, I don't think it's it's a, has a lot in common with it other than the, the two things you'd said, the red headband and the Russian roulette scene. And I do think, like you said, it was a very nice wrinkle to, to have these two, I don't know, probably 10 or 11 year old or maybe even a little bit younger boys sort of running the Russian roulette game and... You know they're pulling the trigger on these these prisoners uh, with all the gambling going on. It it was uh, you know a little bit disturbing, I guess, in a sense, to see these kids that have just you know they've become uh, essentially victims of of their environment. But you know I don't want to get too much into the psychology of that because I'm not uh, an expert in that area. <laughs> yeah, that's something. Again, that's something we've talked about before. That's something you wouldn't see in American cinema, though. You would not see ten and twelve year old boys holding revolvers up to people's heads and blowing their brains out. And I'm not giving anything away. I mean, it's Russian roulette people, so. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's you not going to end well. <laughs> yeah. You know you're going to get a scene or two of, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, aftermath or whatever you want to call it from a Russian roulette scene. So, I mean, uh, there's nothing given away there. But you would never see that in American film. There's no way. And it's hard enough to imagine violence against children, which I know people have a hard time with. But then when children are committing violence, it's uh, especially children that young, it's, uh, it's kind of disturbing to see. And American films tend to shy away from that, obviously. 
Yeah, they do. It's like, you know, when there was all that talk of a Battle Royale remake, um, it's a great Japanese film that uh, if you haven't seen it, I, I encourage all of you to check it out. Uh, mm-hmm. But Battle Royale, as you know, takes place, um, or the characters essentially, sort of a Lord of the Flies setup. I won't veer off too much into this, but the, this, the actors in it are supposed to be in sort of, I think, grade 9 or grade 10. They're very young, and if, I, you can bet your ass that if this was remade in Hollywood, it would be sort of the 90210 school of acting where they'd get 30-year-olds to play high school seniors. You know, because yes. they just they just don't find it as palatable to have legitimately young children doing this. With the nine hundred two one zero thing too, you would also it would also be a PG thirteen rating, and it would also be marketed uh, probably through Burger King. So that's <laughs> yeah, and we know who would produce it, Mister Explosion himself through Platinum Dunes. Yes. <laughs> probably, probably. Other than that, I really don't have a whole lot of other notes. I do want to say that Samuel Hung, he directed, and uh, I don't think he wrote this film, but he directed it, and he does a great job, and you can really see it come through in the stunts and, and everything. I do have a couple questions for you because I I didn't have uh, time to do research on these things, but that main female that's part of that trio, where have I seen her before? I know I've seen her somewhere before. She's got very round eyes. She almost looks uh, not Chinese so much, but maybe Indonesian or something like that. Well, it's actually, it's interesting you brought her up because I was going to bring her up. Her name's Joyce Godenzi, and she was actually Miss Hong Kong at one point. Um, hmm. She is also Samo Hung's wife. Okay. She's half white, half uh, half Chinese. Oh, okay. Uh, I think her dad's from Australia or New Zealand. Um, in terms of what you would have recognized her, and I'm just trying to think here. I, I, you know what, I'm going to just, I'm going to check her filmography. I don't see too many things that are would be overly... Uh, yeah, I don't really see anything that maybe she was. She had a small part in Jackie Chan's Mister Nice Guy. I don't know. Well, if, maybe that's where I saw her from, uh, or maybe I've seen her. And uh, has she worked? She's probably been in other stuff with Samo, obviously being you know his wife or whatever. So maybe yeah. it's some other Samo film I might have saw. Maybe she was in there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. She did a couple things with Samo um, of his. You know, he directed a lot of films actually, um, which again a lot of people don't really realize. Uh, he did one, The Haunted Island. She was in. Um, yeah, she just got a very familiar face. I mean, uh, when I was looking at her, I kept thinking, where have I seen this girl, lady before? You know, I've seen her somewhere before. And she's really good in the movie. I mean, there's some scenes where some things happen to her, and I'm laughing because uh, some of the facial expressions she makes are, <laughs> are classic. Oh, uh, yeah. I was, it's, funny, it's funny you brought that up because, you know, I, when I was taking my notes for the film, I thought, wow, you know, I, I think she's pretty, first of all. And I think that she does, like you said, definitely hold her own in a big, mm-hmm. big way. Uh, she really keeps up with the boys in the action department, in the martial arts department. Um, right. But the scene you're talking of, or you're speaking of, where with her face, yeah, something happens to her, and the facial expressions she's making. Um, I mean, I just I had to start laughing. I think, you know, there was no need for the Leone close up on her face at that point because it, it's just awful. Oh, it is. It's 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 probably the the single most. Uh, it's the the problem I have with this movie is that mixture, like I talked about, and it's probably the single most indicative moment of that going wrong. Uh, because they just do a close-up, Leonie-esque close-up on her face, and I guess she's supposed to react to what just happened to her, and I don't want to give it away. And uh, she's obviously in some pain, because uh, I, it was painful for me to watch her <laughs> act that scene out with her face. Oh, it was really bad. And it's funny, because like I said, I was thinking, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, God, you know, she's I'm impressed. I mean, she really, you know, keeps up with the pack, uh, you know, but then that happened and uh, it took me out of it for a moment. But that's OK. I mean, you know, I guess it's sort of what we'd expect. But yeah, I think the decision to zoom in on her face was an ill-advised one. But mm-hmm. what are you going to do? 
I'll let you go over what uh, you think of this film, and uh, we'll come back and we'll do our ratings and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like we'd said, it was directed by Samuel. Samuel's actually directed a lot of films, uh, and he's still working today. In fact, we're going to be covering one of his more recent efforts uh, within the next probably five or so shows. Um, it's it's a film that I absolutely love, where he's um, he plays a prominent role in it. I won't say any more at this point. Um, one thing I do want to start off with is just saying, in this film, you have three absolute legends of Hong Kong cinema. Uh, you have Yuan Biao, you have Yuan Wu Ping, and Sammo Hung. Uh, Yuan Biao actually went to the, he was at the Peking Opera with Jackie Chan and Sammo together. The three of them were uh, were very close friends, and they all, all trained at the Peking Opera together. Uh, he hasn't done a lot of stuff within the past probably 15 years or so, but I mean, as you could see in the film, I mean, he's he's accomplished, he's, he's uh, very adequate at what he does. Uh, Sammo, I think most of you may be familiar with, like he said, he's sort of the big chubby uh, guy. I mean, he's great in The Magnificent Butcher and, and just a ton of other films. Um, but the name that I thought was most interesting to bring up for the sort of casual martial arts fan is the name Yuan Wu Ping. Most of you are probably aware, and if you're not, he is primarily involved these days with martial arts choreography. Um, you know, he, and it's interesting because you see him in this film, he plays the role of Grandpa, one of the, the Dirty Dozen, as it were. But in terms of choreography, he's, I would say, off the top of my head, the best uh, martial arts or action choreographer chore- excuse me, choreographer going. Um, I'm just going to run through a few films that he's done of note recently. He did The Forbidden Kingdom, the Jackie Chan and Jet Li film, which, although it was PG, had some really, really excellently choreographed stuff. He did House of Fury, which is another Hong Kong film uh, with uh, the great Anthony Wong in it. He did Unleashed, a.k.a. Danny the Dog, the Jet Li film, uh, Kung Fu Hustle, Kill Bill 1 and 2, The Matrix films, uh, going back to Hong Kong, he did Fist of Legend, which if you're if you're a martial arts fan, it is absolutely essential viewing. He did Iron Monkey, which a lot of you would be familiar with. Uh, he did Once Upon a Time in China, that tri- trilogy, which again, if you're a martial arts fan, is essential viewing. Uh, he unfortunately did... Oh, sorry, I misread. Uh, yeah, but I mean, he's done, as you can see, a lot of excellent, excellent stuff. The Magnificent Butcher. So, I mean, he's very, very accomplished. And I think a lot of people know the name, but they don't know the face. Um, so I thought it'd, it'd be interesting for people to see him in a somewhat minor role. But, I mean, he's, he's got some lines in it. Um, I did want to say that the film does look pretty dated. You know, yeah. And that's, yeah, the transfer I have is uh, is not much different than the transfer we had for Raiders of Atlanta. It's just a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, as is mine. I think that's the problem with a lot of transfers of Hong Kong films from that era. They they aren't very good transfers, you know, and it's unfortunate. But I guess what are you going to do? You kind of got to take what you can get. But I think... You know, one of the good things, as much as I hate a lot of stuff that the Weinsteins do, they do have a large back catalog of martial arts films, and they're slowly, slowly starting to release them. And that's not, I'm not commending them for it, because they've sat on this stuff far too long. Um, but maybe, I don't know if they have this. If they do, I'm sure at some point we'll get a nice print of it. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting, they shot a lot of the, the American scenes with the military bases in Canada, in case you couldn't tell by all the snow uh, during the military <laughs> scenes. But yeah, it was all shot in Canada because uh, because Vancouver and so forth being so close and on the Pacific Rim and whatnot, uh, and with us having a large Asian population here. Like you had also mentioned, I just wanted to say that, you know, it's interesting to see the setting here. Not many Hong Kong films are set in the war, and it was interesting to see that sort of taken away from the usual uh, setting that you would expect from martial arts or action films. One thing I did found find pretty excellent was... Uh, by the 11-minute mark, we're treated to an asshole slash chota slash taint stabbing by one of the female gorillas. I don't know if you remember that scene. <laughs> yes. 
I do remember that scene because I puckered up, to say the least. Oh, yeah, as did I. I mean, that's something you don't see every day is a female gorilla in camouflage stabbing a soldier in the asshole and or taint with a pretty big knife. Yes. So, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, as usual, you're going to get your 80s trampoline jumping. Um, There's a lot of explosions. There's actually a lot of gunplay, which, again, is very out of the norm. For a martial arts movie, I mean, there's a scene where you got six people on this uh, this huge motorbike, kind of guns blazing as they're they're uh, storming into a spot. Um, oh yeah, the, the trike. Yeah, the, the trike. Old motorcycle. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a pretty nice shot. I don't know if you recall that one with the coconut, the sort of soccer shot that Yen Biao did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 reminds me that there there's something I didn't go over in mine was uh, there's a lot of uh, slow motion use in this film, which is it's kind of odd but very cool too. Uh, a lot of slow motion use. Uh, Samuel decided to use a lot of slow motion, which uh, really sells the stunts very well and the the martial arts really well because you can actually see it's that person very clearly. Yeah, there. I, it's funny you said that because the note I actually have for for the film is there's lots of slow and there really is, but. That's twofold. It was sort of uh, very hot at the time. You know, John Woo, a lot of other people were using slow-mo. Yeah. And it's it's also, slow-mo does lend itself well uh, to martial arts films in a sense. Because like you said, sometimes movements are done so quick that you can't appreciate how awesome, essentially, for lack of a better term, what they're doing is. So they slow it down so you can see it a little bit better. Because otherwise, yeah, things just, you know, you're not going to really appreciate the artistry and the skill it's going to, you know, with uh, what they're actually getting into. Yeah, the one scene of slow motion that probably could have been taken out that's kind of funny to me is the uh, Sammo bouncing on the, uh, the boards. Oh, you didn't like that? I liked it, but it was kind of silly too. And the only reason why is because it didn't look like those boards were giving him much bounce. I mean, they were just, he would land on them and they would bend. Yeah. <laughs> and they would not bend back up. Yeah, that's true. But he would be bouncing as if he was on a trampoline. And it took him about 30 seconds to get across there, which is pretty impressive, though. But I mean, uh, yeah, they would, he would bounce on them. And obviously, you know, on the other side, when you shoot it from the other side and they show him bouncing, it's obvious he's bouncing on these little trampolines. Yeah, but when they show him actually bouncing on these boards, and I can't tell if they're—I think they're supposed to be steel. Yeah, I think so. And, and when he lands on them, they just bow down, and then he just kind of lifts off of them. But the the board stays bowed down. Now I'm not a physics major, but I'm pretty sure that if you're going to get the kind of spring he was getting, that board's got to bow back up and shoot you back up into the air a little bit. But uh, it, that was pretty funny, I thought. Yeah, and I, I really like that scene though because the the payoff with that is you get him doing sort of a flying belly slash with a machete in hand onto a VC soldier. Yeah. Yeah, you know. yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it, uh, every time the slow-mo kicks in, you get some great payoffs. You you know in this movie that if slow-mo kicks in, there's going to be a hell of a payoff at the end of the slow motion. Yeah, no, exactly. Another good example of that is the uh, using leafs for darts. That was that was fucking awesome. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And and those, I mean, these were seriously large darts. Like, it, they would almost impale the guy. Like, they'd go on one end of his neck and come out the other side. I mean, he just took a leaf, put it on his shoulder like a bazooka, uh ripped the leaf on one side and the stem uh, and i'm not familiar with uh, vietnamese plants and you know i know the movie's supposed to be based in vietnam uh, man if that's the case i'd stay away from the hell away from them plants man because these things are like javelins coming out of these leaves that is actually a very apt way to describe them as javelins because yeah I, I you know you always see sort of the blow darts and so forth but these things were really really big just a couple more notes before we get into everything uh, in terms of our ratings and so forth. Um, actually, I won't give away the bit with Stuttering Kung uh, in the plane. I'm sure 
most people can kind of telegraph. Yeah, that I one. thought about giving that away too. That was actually very funny and very inspired. Bit I like that quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Um, I do want to say that I thought Samuel's decision to have these uh, female Cambodian guerrilla fighters uh, was a really nice touch and added a nice wrinkle to the guys on a mission uh, subgenre. Yeah. You know, because a lot of times you get the guys, and these women all acquitted themselves, like I said earlier, very well with the physical stuff and the martial arts and so forth. Um, so I, you know, I certainly commend him uh, for that. Uh, just another casting note I thought was interesting was, uh, did the the main Pillsbury Doughboy giggling villain in the Doctor Evil costume uh, look familiar to you? You know, he did kind of. Uh, but I can't remember where I saw him from. And uh, giggling is the appropriate term. I'm not going to try to do an impression of it because I cannot get my voice that high, I don't think. No, it's, it is it is like the Keebler elf with um, with uh, helium. I mean, it's just pretty awful. But that's actually Yuen Wa, and he was in Kung Fu Hustle. Do you remember the couple? I think the woman did the lion roar. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right, yeah. Okay, now, now, now I know where I saw him. Yeah. Wow. He's he's pretty accomplished. He he sort of stepped out of the limelight for a long time, uh, but you go back and look at some of his early filmography. He's got some pretty uh, some pretty impressive stuff. And again, he's another guy like you know we've we keep saying that acquitted himself well with the martial arts stuff. With I, I believe, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, his Tiger Claw stuff uh, was yeah. pretty good. Yeah, he's badass. Uh, once he decides to throw down and stick the fan he's carrying around in the back of his shirt, uh, he can throw down. Yeah, yeah. Once he stops giggling, yeah, and puts that fan away, he's all business. You know, <laughs> he's uh, very, he's very effeminate. I guess that's the proper word. Very, uh, I don't know, kind of a, kind of a tipsy type of villain. One of those, uh, you know, I'm a pretty boy slash uh, almost blatantly homosexual type of he, villain. Yeah, he. That again comes back to sort of the broad humor that you know he's this kind of poofy, you know, uh, light and a loafers giggling villain. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like I said, when he decides to throw down, it uh, it was certainly great. Um, in, in terms of the script, one line, the only line I'll probably bring up, because I mean, let's face it, you don't really watch a film like this for the script, is there was some good comedy, but one thing I liked was when our heroes were getting ready to jump out of the plane, and one of the guys says, oh, what if I can't pull the chute? And the lieutenant quickly replies, well, I guess you'll be the first one to land. I mean, it uh, at the time, in, in the context of the movie, it was pretty pretty humorous because this guy is just freaking out he's he's starting to get anxiety about uh, not being able to do this and instead of alleviating his concerns lieutenant just basically tells him well i guess you're gonna splatter then so i thought that was kind of humorous and yeah there's some you know there certainly was some good uh, good humor in this and the film does move at a pretty brisk pace all in all yeah yeah let me also mention that uh, oscar winner i believe hang uh, s nor nor or something like that yeah, he's, he's a Vietnamese actor. He was in The Killing Fields. Yeah, he was in The Killing Fields, and I believe he won an Oscar for that. Unfortunately, I think he was killed in a, a drive-by shooting or something like that in L.A. Uh, something like that. Some inadvertently um, accidental shooting of some kind he was killed in. Uh, but, man, he's a, he, he plays an interesting character in this movie, too. And, you know, he's got that kind of charisma that he always had. That, And I was surprised to see him in this film, actually, because I always thought he was, you know, this uh, quote-unquote very serious actor. And then he comes in and plays the idiot savant for a while, which kind of changes <laughs> later. But... <laughs> He does. He does some pretty comedic moments. Some pretty good stuff. Yeah, he does. He definitely does. And, and like you, I was also very surprised to see him in this. And it's not to discredit this film, but yeah, you know, this is sort of a fun, goofy ride. And to see, uh, you know, sort of this Oscar-winning serious actor in in this uh, sort of yeah goofy idiot role was a little surprising, but interesting certainly. I don't think there's anything else uh, I really wanted needed to say that we haven't touched on. I guess. Um, yeah. Okay. I guess I'll kick it over to you uh, in terms of your your ratings for it. All right. 
here's the way I feel about this movie. I got the make or break scene. My make or break for this movie is uh, basically the action sequences, uh, all of them, because every action sequence in this film is truly entertaining. I mean, there's some that are just plain ludicrous, but that's the make or break here. If, if you like uh, Asian cinema with over-the-top uh, stunts and action and martial arts, then you will get a kick out of this film. Uh, the story structure is, is kind of sloppy, and it's, it's not, you know, it's not an award-winning type movie. It's nothing like that, but... As an action movie, these sequences are great, and I recommend anybody that likes that kind of stuff. If you're only familiar with Jackie Chan stuff or some of the other stuff, maybe Kung Fu Hustle, maybe you're only familiar with that stuff now, go back and check this out because uh, there's some really, really, really great stunt work in this film. And uh, it's also pretty good for the uh, people who like war films. I mean, the war violence is very realistic in this film, so it's a, it's, it's a good time as far as that goes. My MVT for this movie, uh, this really goes without saying, it's Sammo Hung. It just seems like a pet project for him. It seems like he was involved in everything. Uh, obviously, he directed it. And- and, and stuff, and uh, you know, this is a slimmer, more agile Samuel Hung than he typically is. I had a lot of fun watching him. He really draws you to the screen every time he's on, and uh, he's always had a great face and everything. And I think it's really him that kind of holds the whole movie together. That's not to say there's not a lot of great acting. Well, not great acting might be an inappropriate word, but. <laughs> That's not to say there's not a lot of other people in the movie that are a lot of fun to watch, but Sammo seems to be the glue that holds the whole project together, and I just felt like he was the MVT of the film. That and, uh, you know, just jokingly, that song at the end of the film was was just fucking awesome. You know, I got to say, just before I I start talking about my my, uh, ratings for it as I break it down, and before you get to your actual numerical rating, (laughs) Hong Kong and actually Asian cinema in general, I find, always has awful music it's very melodramatic and this was another example of that i mean it was just terrible i mean teach their own i guess is again it's something that maybe gets lost in translation but it the problem with that is it kind of takes me out of scenes sometimes um yeah a good example of that would probably be john woo's the killer mm, yeah yeah there's some music in that and it's just like overly sappy and, it, and and they just keep returning to it and returning to it and returning to it yeah no you're right and it happens a lot and it's just i wish they'd get away from it because it, it really takes you out of a moment uh sometimes that, that could be a little more poignant than it is because the music is just so heavy-handedly uh sappy all right so i'll get into my score for this film uh i kind of debated on this for a while uh and don't get me wrong i really like this movie uh it's kind of you know kind of a it's kind of sloppily put together uh low budget martial arts film that's what it felt like to me i don't know what the budget was but i'm gonna go ahead and give it a uh 6.5 i mean that's what i felt like it was it's very entertaining if you love this type of movie you're gonna you're gonna like it and you might rate it higher on your personal level than i would and i don't know what your rating is because we haven't talked about our ratings previously but 6.5 is where i'm gonna go with this i had a great time with it uh it's not something i would watch every year but it is something i would return to on occasion and uh had a lot of fun with there's just the only thing that really kind of hurt it for me as far as the score was is there was those scenes of, of melodrama in the film just felt some of them felt really forced and there were some moments in between where between the action that uh just felt kind of like they didn't really need to be there so that's really the reason why i brought it down to 6.5 uh but overall i still enjoyed it so i'll uh, kick it over to you and see what you thought okay um in terms of my make or break scene uh there was i mean i know normally we would say one scene but there's two things i just can't uh i can't sort of separate them i think for different reasons um the first scene it's one of the action scenes there's a scene where samo has uh, a knife in each hand and he scales this very tall tree using the knives to pull himself up um yeah. once he's up very very high i uh, <laughs> i remember the first time I'd seen this film, I thought, oh, I'd love to see him jump down on someone with those knives. 
And, uh, of course, Samo does, in fact, deliver. Uh, he gets up very high in this tree, and he jumps from the top, knives extended, and just sticks them in this uh, VC soldier. So I absolutely love that scene. And there's a lot of great action in this, a lot of great martial arts uh, in the film. But that, for me, was sort of my favorite moment uh, from an action standpoint. Um, one thing in terms of, I guess, a more brutal scene for me that I thought was handled pretty well was I mentioned in the plot of the film that uh, there was a mole, I guess, or a spy or a traitor amongst the the three Cambodian guerrillas. And once right. this once this is found out, um, essentially the other two Cambodian girls, one's basically to her back, one's to her face, and they're confronting her on this. Because, I mean, let's face it, these, these women are fighting for their freedom. They've taken an oath, you know, uh, to, to do everything they can for their country because they've been oppressed by Vietnam for so long. Uh, so it's, it's obviously a very... Uh, serious thing for this girl to be a traitor what happens is uh the girl i don't think i don't think i'm really giving anything away here by saying this the one in the back of her shoots her in the back of the head and the blood splatters all over the the woman in the front's face and she just she has a stone face throughout this and to me it was one of the more powerful visual moments in the film because like i said a lot of the film's sort of a fun romp of a film and to see that it uh it stuck with me as far as uh, a more dramatic moment i guess um in terms of my mbt it's uh joyce godenzi's face during the scene we talked about earlier um no no it's it's very obvious here i mean it has to be samo samo directed the film like you said samo really is the glue that holds the film together it does have a nice little ensemble but uh you know samo's got a lot of charisma and he certainly uh, i don't see how anyone else could have been the mvt for this film uh in terms yeah, let me go back and say about that scene with samo coming up the tree not only is he climbing up a tree with knives, which is impressive enough, but not only that, he gets to the top and then flips himself over uh, with these knives, which is, I think, humanly impossible, but very impressive. Yes, very, very impressive. I mean, even pulling yourself up with knives at 220, 230 would be a very difficult feat. But, you know, like I said, physics and, and uh, things of that nature tend to, tend to go out the window. Uh, when it comes to that stuff. But in terms of my rating, I rated it slightly higher than you. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a fan of quarter points. or uh, Yeah, quarter points. Uh, so I'm going to give it a 6.75. That's your nickname, Big Willie Quarter Points. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I give it a 6.75 out of 10. And again, it's not to say I don't like it. I do really like this film. Um, I think if you are a fan of martial arts films, you absolutely should check it out. Um, if you're not overly familiar with Samo, this would give you a good example of uh, a starring vehicle he was in. You get to see him direct the film and see how it's handled in that respect. And I think if you're a martial arts fan and you're looking to see a martial arts film that doesn't play, taste, take place in an urban area or in a, a temple or a countryside, things of that nature, it's really interesting to see the balance between gunplay and martial arts in Vietnam. Because let's face it, there's not very many war slash uh, or war movies in period from from Hong Kong or, or Asia, for the most part. Yeah. So um, that rating may may seem a little low, but like you said, I think uh, if I had been played a little more straight, I definitely would have given it a higher rating. But I mean, you know, it's a fun film, and um, yeah, six point seven five is my rating. That sounds good. All right, so six point five, six point seven five. We do, even though the scores don't maybe not dictate that. We do, uh, especially if you're a martial arts fan or an Asian cinema fan, we do recommend checking it out. And with that, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to go over the fog. Let's bring the class to the trash. It's 
It's a well-known fact that a lot of people that like podcasts also like the 80s, and I think it stands to reason that they also like Ghostbusters, which is why I'm playing the song in the background of this ad that I'm doing for Show Show's second annual Halloween Spectacular. It's a festival that we do uh, every year, I guess. Uh, two years in a row, anyway. Um, at Show Show, where we watch 31 movies and record 31 episodes throughout the entire month of October. Uh, we're going to be watching some really, really good shit, like Rumpelstiltskin. <clears throat> anyway, check out showshowpodcast.com for more details. love the uh, music breaks. I like to extend them because I just sit here and, and dance for a little while. Oh, yeah. I actually had on, uh, when I, you know, I uh, knew you were going to have the man from Minnesota, so I put on my best pair of stilettos and assless pants <laughs> and danced her on my st- recording studio as well. Nice. Good thing we don't have a webcam for the assless pants. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Okay, so we'll cut that out and jump into our next review, which is for a film that really needs no introduction for fans of genre cinema, but I'm going to give it anyway. Here we go, 1980's The Fog, directed by John Carpenter. I think it was written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Uh, Basic plot synopsis is this. A Northern California fishing town built 100 years ago over an old leper colony is the target for revenge by a killer fog containing zombie-like ghosts seeking revenge for their deaths. Uh, that's pretty much the, that in a nutshell. That's, that pretty much sums it up, I think. Uh, I know I'm a big fan of this movie. I know Will's a pretty big fan of this movie, but let's just see how big of fans we really are. So I'll go ahead and kick it over to you and let you get started with it. Okay, um, I'm going to try and keep this short. I think that's probably impossible at this point. But I'll try and zip through what I have to say. And I do have a lot to say about this film because you and I had talked about this film um, and you had said that you wanted to do it, and I was thrilled because I often felt, and I know you felt the same way, that this really was probably John Carpenter's most underappreciated masterpiece. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's such a great, great film. But let me uh, let me get into my notes here. Uh, right off the bat, I mean, you have a great opening of the film with John Hausman sitting around the uh, the campfire, telling a ghost story. Uh, so right away, as usual, Carpenter's able to set the mood 
right away that this isn't going to be Halloween. This isn't going to be Assault on Precinct 13. Very clearly, it's going to be a modern ghost story. Further to the mood, I, I just I was very, very impressed. And one thing I absolutely love about the film, uh, in addition to the grade A Carpenter score, as usual for that time period, was the old time jazz music that Stevie Wayne plays. That's uh, Adrian yeah. Barbeau's character, for those unaware. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention her actual voice itself. You know, I when going back and listening to the, D, uh, the commentary track... Um, I heard that they actually wanted to get some rock music, but because the budget for this film was very low, they were unable to get any. So they had to use a lot of this public domain kind of uh, old-time kind of jazzy stuff, which I think is a good thing because, again, it lends itself very, very well and is much more effective uh, in setting this up as sort of a classic kind of ghost story because I think with blaring rock and so forth, it would kind of take you out of this, uh, this mood and this moment a lot more than the the uh, old-time jazz would. Um, yeah, yeah, the jazz works really well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I thought it's interesting, you know, John Carpenter actually makes a cameo in the film, which he <laughs> never did again, and, and for good reason. I think he is clearly one of those guys that's better behind the camera than in front of it. Uh, Although to, he did have some awesome locks. I dug the hair very much. It great, was very nice. Great locks, great stash. Those of us used to seeing him with the gray hair and uh, gray stash, you get it, You get to see it shoe polish black in this film. <laughs> uh, he's got a... Tight Wrangler pants, which I don't know what that says about me, but, you know... Yeah, yeah, that's true. He does have those on, and he's he's got a bit of an exchange uh, with Hal Holbrook, who plays the priest in this. But yeah, it was interesting to see him in a cameo. I, you know, before I'd ever seen this film, I didn't know that he ever did that. So it was kind of like, oh wait, there's John Carpenter. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, he further sets the table in the mood uh, right off the hop with all of the inanimate objects being, uh, excuse me, inanimate objects being brought to life. I mean, you get the phones ringing, coins spewing from them, glass breaking, uh, gas being pumped. All sorts of stuff. Uh, So again, as he's a master of, I mean, he just sets the tone right away for you. I think they also do a good job of establishing that this is a fishing community. When, you know, you get that scene where uh, the store clerk is kind of cleaning up the store and things start happening in the store, you can kind of see a lot of fishing relics there. You know, stuffed fish, teeth from uh, a rather large, uh, I don't know if it was a muskie or what it was. Um, the fishing-related uh, coffee cups, etc. So again, you know, a lot of people, they, they have to bring in all this needless sort of uh, dialogue and exposition to uh, convey what they're trying to or to set a film up. But, you know, John Carpenter, because he's such a visual master, um, he was able to do that with just showing you a few brief things during a scene that was accomplishing a few things at once. It was setting up the ghost side as well as establishing this is taking place in a fishing town. So I thought that was, uh, that was well done. I thought the scene they did, uh, actually, with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Atkins, and we'll get to, I guess, the whole cast probably a little later on, uh, was pretty good. I'd seen in the, the commentary that the truck wasn't moving. Um, I can't remember the, the term they use. It's poor man's something. Uh, it's poor a, man's process. Yeah, poor man's process. That's right. It's a pretty common, commonly used thing. Um, and the reason for this was because it's it's a lot more costly and it's uh, it's actually a lot more difficult from a technical standpoint to have the truck actually moving and them filming it. They get better coverage, uh, things are more intimate, and everything just uh, works a lot better sometimes using this. And what that is is the truck's stationary and maybe they'll have lights kind of going in the background as if to indicate they're on a road. So that was something I thought uh, was really well done. Further to that, I thought it was interesting to see, if I, I kind of put myself back in the time frame of when this came out, to see Jamie Lee Curtis kind of all grown up because previously we'd seen her in Halloween where uh, Laurie was very young, 
you know, a teenage girl in this. She's sort of, she's still a young woman, but she's definitely a lot more of a mature character, uh, a bit of a free spirit. So I thought that was nice. And I think it was certainly intentional on her part, much like a lot of actresses do nowadays. They take on a little more um, serious or risque, I guess, parts. Not that she, I mean, she's swinging around a stripper pole in this movie, but it's clearly, you know, uh, showing her as a more mature woman, I guess, as opposed to a girl. Yeah, it's a different time, too, because nowadays you probably would have a girl who's a stripper with a heart of gold. Back then you had a hitchhiker who just would take her pants off in five minutes after meeting somebody. So nowadays a stripper probably wouldn't sleep with somebody they just met, but which is weird. But back then, you know, it was a freer time. You know, this is the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, you know, people were a little bit more trusting back then. So yeah. you kind of got to put yourself in that frame of mind when you think about her character in the film. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. And yeah, it is a lot more liberal, free-thinking time than it is now and just the fact that this young woman was hitchhiking i think i I know myself you rarely see hitchhikers nowadays Mm -hmm. that's true you know it's it's certainly a sign of the times you know one thing i think john carpenter doesn't get enough credit for and and he doesn't even well maybe he doesn't but he doesn't give himself enough credit for is a lot of his writing uh, in terms of dialogue you know he always says he doesn't like it but i think he's great at it um you know just for example the one of the exchanges between uh between the fishermen they're on the boat on the um the fishing boat where we first see the ghosts uh, kind of appear in their physical form. And uh, they're listening, yeah. listening to Stevie Wayne on the radio. And one of them says, oh, I'd like to meet her. And uh, one of the fishermen says that he saw her at the grocery store and you would like to meet her. You know, just sort of this guy talk, uh, little things like that. I mean, some of the exchanges between uh, Adrian Barbeau's character and the weather guy were kind of this rat-a-tat-tat, witty kind of back and forth. Uh, even some of the stuff between yeah. Atkins and Curtis were great. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of it. Uh, you know, as Carpenter's never made a secret of, he's a big fan of Howard Hawks and older films in general. I think a lot of it was influenced by that. That you know, sort of the dame would would kind of keep up with the guy in terms of this witty dialogue back and forth. It's very witty dialogue, and uh, that's a good example. That uh, boat, because uh, Buck Flowers on that boat too, and he keeps saying, oh, "There's no fog out there." <laughs> you know, in that best Buck Flower type accent, and yeah. eventually he sees it, and then you get Buck flowers uh, facial expressions which are he's only has about three so yeah yeah and it's funny you mentioned that because i wanted to mention that i think buck flowers is maybe a perfect porn name <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know i just i love that if i was a porn star i'd i'd probably want to use that name it's uh it's great it's got the the rough and rugged of buck with the tenderness of flowers so you kind of get the best of both worlds the script, there's a line where Jamie Lee's character is talking to Tom Atkins when the shit starts hitting the fan with all these ghosts. And I think in sort of a, a wink to the, the horror fans, she has a line where she says, bad things always seem to happen to me. I'm bad luck. And I think, and I, maybe it was just she was referring to her character and that was that, but knowing John Carpenter and that he's a smarter writer than that, I think it was sort of a little wink to the fans in terms of Halloween, even though it wasn't Laurie Strode. Right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's the kind of feeling I got too. It was like a little inside joke. Yeah, for horror fans, which is always nice. God, they used a lot of dry ice in this film. I mean, this isn't CGI. This is 1980, and the amount of dry ice and real fog and everything else they use in this film, I mean, it really is a testament to the hard work of them to pull this off. Because in this day and age, oh, let's CGI some fog, off we go. You know, But, they, I mean, they really had to had to sort of wrangle this stuff in, and there's a lot of it in this film. Yeah, and some really neat ways to use it, too. I mean, uh, because you can't really see anything through that kind of uh, smoke from dry ice and the fog that it creates, they would, uh, Dean Cundy would, uh, you know, backlight the fog, and you would see a silhouette through the fog. It was really uh, pretty ingenious when you think about it. 
Oh, it definitely was. It definitely was. And I think we'll probably get into Cundy here in a moment. Um, One thing I do want to say, I thought, you know, in terms of the ghosts in general, um, I'm not a big fan of ghosts per se. I don't find them very spooky for the most part, but I thought they did a pretty good job with them in this film. Um, they were very, very ominous. A lot of times you get that shot where a character would turn around and they'd just be standing there, like on the boat with, with Buck Flowers. They're standing there motionless, and it's very, very ominous. Yes. You know, and you, it, does, it is very creepy, you know, which I think is, is, like I said, sometimes difficult to pull off when you're using ghosts. Uh, and some of the kills on the boat, I can't remember which character it is, but one of them gets a knife uh, in, the, in the throat or, or in their upper, upper body, and they were some very giallo-like shots uh, that I found yes. with the, the editing and the knife in hand and, you know, in and out, sort of rapid fire. And I know that Carpenter is a big fan of Argento, and he's often said that Halloween was influenced by Argento. So I thought that moment in particular felt very giallo to me, the way they, they shot uh, a couple of those kills on the boat. Yeah, no, it, it had the same kind of feel to me. I believe they had to go back and, uh, I believe on the commentary track on the DVD, I think Carpenter says they had to go back and shoot some of that stuff because uh, it's weird, actually, the studio, this is definitely a different time. The studio felt like they needed more uh, kind of uh, maybe bloody or gory moments, even though the film's not gory or bloody. Uh, I guess they just needed some more punctuation. Uh, I think originally he had shot it with less, the appropriate word here is penetration of blades or, or maybe not as gruesome. And uh, the studio actually requested that he go back and do that. Now, that's a sign of the times because nowadays uh, I think they would ask you to take it out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's one thing, yeah, I was going to bring up was I wanted to commend, I think it was Avco Embassy at the time for, it's the one instance I can think of off the top of my head where studio interference was a good thing. I mean, you know, as much as I love Carpenter, that stuff really does add to the sort of ominous and the sort of doom of the ghosts. Uh, Whereas if... You know, it's just a lot of this swirling around kind of stuff. It wouldn't have been as... You wouldn't have felt on the edge for the characters as much as you did or this real threat as much as you did. Because you can see this is tangible now. This is physical violence. People are getting stabbed. People are getting killed by these ghosts. So, yeah, I think it was a great example of the studio interference for once working in the film's favor uh, in terms of making it a better film. Yeah, it is a sign of the times, certainly. As far as the film itself goes, there's... uh, you know, some pretty good casting. Actually, we'll get into that probably a little bit later. I did want to say it was kind of a nice touch, though, with Janet Lee and, and uh, Jamie Lee in a movie together. But I guess we could probably touch on that a little bit later on uh, when we talk about the film. Uh, do you want to get in mm-hmm. Dean Cundy for a bit? Because I know you and I are both big fans of his and, and big fans of what he did on this film. Yeah, yeah. Dean Cundy is the uh, director of photography on this film. And uh, a lot of people might be familiar with Dean Cundy. He's got a lot of different diverse credits. And uh, probably recently, his biggest film might have been uh, Jurassic Park, probably. He worked with Steven uh, Spielberg a couple times. and But he had a, he had a few moments in uh, the 70s that were real shining moments. And I don't have the credits in front of me, but I do know that he shot... Uh, well, first of all, he shot Rock and Roll High School which is just fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Even though you can't really tell that's Dean Cundy, but hey, you know, that's, that is what it is. Um, he did uh, a Halloween, obviously, which was very influential from the time it came out until the time, well, and still to this day, really, it's still very influential, the way it's shot and everything, and, and he's always been very creative. And then he did, uh, I guess he did The Fog, and then he did uh, Escape from New York, he did The Thing. He worked with Carpenter about, you know, 
I guess three or four, four, four or five films in a row. He, and I know he worked in a couple other movies with him. Uh, Cundy has a very unique visual style that lends itself very well to John Carpenter's directorial style. And it's really, to me, these guys should never be apart. They're like, uh, I don't know, they're like Laurel and Hardy. Uh, maybe not uh, that kind of slapstick, but they're, they're, they belong together. You know, I mean, perfect example of that might be that uh, some of Carpenter's later stuff isn't shot by Cundy. Cundy and uh, Cundy. That's a foreign <laughs> name for Cundy. Uh, it's not really shot by him. And I think you can kind of tell i mean most people probably agree that uh, everything pretty much after in the mouth of madness by carpenters is, is kind of subpar it's okay it's good stuff but it's not the carpenter we love and i'm not sure if he shot prince of darkness or not i don't have anything in front of me to, to tell you that uh, and i know he didn't shoot in the mouth of madness but very quickly just uh, to, just to interject sorry about that sammy the last film he shot for carpenter because i had to look this up because i wanted to see when it ended and i would have guessed earlier than this was Big Trouble in Little China, which is odd because it doesn't look like a Cundy film either. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I knew he had shot that, and that's definitely, that's kind of like more in the vein of uh, Cundy's, uh, you know, rock and roll high school work. It's more blasted out, more wide open, not as much use of shadow or lights in the eyes and things. Uh, you know, The Fog is one of the, unfortunately for years, I think, uh, I saw The Fog a bunch of times on VCR tape, and this movie does not lend itself well to VCR tape. No, not at all. It looks horrible. It's it's almost unwatchable because of the shadows and the darkness. Yeah, you can barely see anything. Yeah. And you have to really kind of blast the contrast in your TV way up to even see anything. So I'd always thought, you know, I love this movie, man, but I can't see it. So finally when they released a DVD of it and you could see everything, it just made me realize even that much more how much I love this movie and how much, you know, Cundy brings to it, uh, how much John Carpenter's score is uh, probably his, and me and you've talked about this, probably his most underappreciated score. I mean, he has such an iconic score with Halloween that uh, it kind of begins and ends with most people right then and there. I think people forget a lot of times how talented John carpenter was he, he would edit he would uh he would write he would shoot he would do the music i mean this is a renaissance man in, in the film world and really probably the last of his kind because really there's been few and far between since then i know rodriguez is uh, Robert rodriguez has tried to because he uh carpenter's a big influence on him i know he has tried to kind of take over the mantle of uh you know editing and uh, writing his own music and and stuff like that but uh that, well that's two different filmmakers to say the least i mean Robert rodriguez obviously has add and then uh, you know carpenter obviously says you know sit down relax i'm gonna let this story kind of flow over you mm -hmm. uh you know like water like warm water or something uh, and that's how he shoots his movies whereas you know rodriguez kind of punches you in the mouth you know five thousand times in an hour and a half so uh but you know that you can still see the influences there that he wants to be involved in every aspect of the filmmaking and really he's the only person i think right now that's really doing it that i can think of off the top of my head i'm sure there might be somebody else out there but he's the only one i can think of right now i think yeah there's probably people out of necessity sort of putting on all the different different hats but yeah rodriguez not out, clearly out of necessity because i mean he's he's pretty bankable and it's sort of a bigger name now yeah is the only guy i can think of off the top of my head too and i don't know if you just mentioned this but taking his sort of love for Carpenter one step further, anyone who's seen Planet Terror can just clearly, clearly hear that the, the score in that is very, very obviously a nod to Carpenter because it's a very Carpenter-esque score. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's totally got a Carpenter feel. <laughs> also, to allude to what you said, the atmosphere, that is the most important thing about horror films, especially late 70s, early 80s horror films that I miss the most. What I miss the most is I miss uh, atmosphere. I miss the taking your time to set a film up. I'm a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I know Carpenter's a fan of Kubrick as well, and I'm a fan of, you know, Leone and these guys. You know, let your camera set your movie up i mean you don't have to 
rush through with dialogue. The perfect example of this is like Michael Bay, for instance, who sets his movie up through dialogue all the time. He shoots, 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 and every whole time his exposition is all in his dialogue. Uh, he's telling you everything that's happening. With uh, Leone, Carpenter, these guys, even uh, Tarantino nowadays, they take their time in letting the movie set itself up. And a lot of people nowadays, because of the way our entertainment world is, and you know, everybody's more busy and needs more time to do this or to watch, you know. If you're like me, you're looking, trying to get, you know, 15 films in in one week or something like that. You want your movies to be fast, quick, and, and everything. And, and, and there's times for that and places for that. And some directors do it really well. But I really, really miss the directors who, who took their time to set a movie up. And uh, Carpenter was doing that as far into uh, In the Mouth of Madness. He took a time to set up In the Mouth of Madness. And unfortunately, I think just, you know, his style of filmmaking kind of fell by the wayside with youth. And when you make horror films and genre movies, you're really aiming your movies toward young people first. Uh, you know, you might get some people who are older uh, who like that kind of stuff, but typically you're aiming at, you know, the young crowd. And you can see that with the Fog remake, which I've never watched, but I've seen bits and pieces of. You can see that it's rushed and it's in a hurry to get its story going and rolling. I don't think you need that. You don't really need that to set up something ominous, you know. And, and that's a great word you used earlier with the uh, silhouettes in the fog. There's an, a certain amount of, you know, this ominous feeling that these guys are deadly, but you never see these uh, ghosts or zombie-like ghosts. You never see them moving very quickly. Uh, it's not like they're, and of course they don't have to because they have the fog to cover them up, but you never see any of that type of, uh, you know, crazy butchery type uh, behavior of a slasher or anything like that. You just see, it, very similar to Michael Myers in Halloween, you know, it's, uh, you know, the old uh, Pepe Le Pew thing, you know, you can run as fast as you can, but Pepe will catch you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what people who watch these kind of movies expect, you know, I mean, I think that that's the one thing that's missing from modern horror films is, you know, give me some time. Let me breathe. Let me let me start to love these characters and let me uh, you know, let me fall in love with these people. So when they if when and if they get killed, uh, it means something more to me than just uh, admiring special effects. That's really my two cents on, uh, you know, filmmaking, I guess, <laughs> in general. Uh, let me add that. Uh, I have to add this because I'm here in Kentucky, but John Carpenter actually grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky, uh, which is uh, about two hours from me and went to Western Kentucky University. So he's a hilltopper. That's what they call those guys down there. And uh, Bowling Green's a small community. And uh, it's amazing to me that this guy came from Bowling Green, went to USC film school and became what he was. And he smokes like a freight train, like a lot of people in Kentucky do. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. You see every commentary he's ever done. You always see smoke kind of rising up past him. I've, I don't think I've ever seen an interview with him where he's not smoking. And I think that's probably why he doesn't do more interviews nowadays because there's all these, uh, you know, you can't smoke here, can't smoke there. And he just says, well, fuck it. I'm not doing the interview if I can't smoke. Yeah, I mean, he, this guy loves smoking. And he'll never he'll never say that he doesn't like it. He said a million times he loves cigarettes and he likes to smoke. And it's simple as that. And that's pretty much the philosophy of a lot of eastern and western Kentucky individuals in Kentucky. Trust me, this is a tobacco state. And uh, smoking is a... Uh, even though we have the public smoking bans now, uh, it's still hard. You're still hard pressed to see people paying any attention to that shit because uh, this is, you know, a state that tobacco built basically. So you're not going to see much of that. Uh, let's see a couple other notes. You went over a lot of stuff that I was going to go over, so really I don't have to cover a whole lot. But let's go ahead and talk about Tom Atkins, who is very cool in this movie. Uh, Sans mustache, which is kind of a shame because the mustache fucking rules when he wears it. Yeah, but, it does. It's uh, it's like his cape. He's a bit of a pimp in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Atkins is always a pimp. I I love Tom Atkins. I, I you know I think I'm going to bring this up a few times as we go a little bit further in terms of other people involved with this film. But I really really wish Tom Atkins worked more because to me I've always looked at him as sort of the everyman's tough guy. You know he never usually I mean he he'll play a cop, but he never usually plays hardcore kind of uh, army guy. He's usually just like in this he's kind of a truck driver fisherman type. 
uh, Night of the Creeps. He was sort of a low-end detective. Uh, Halloween uh-huh. 3, I don't even... Oh, I think he was a cop in that too, but... You know, he's just sort of an everyman tough guy that I just, I absolutely love. And in fact, I have a Tom Atkins t-shirt that I wear that uh, I just love. <laughs> I, I think he's great. And I, I really wish he worked more. And I know he's getting up there now, but it's a shame no one's brought him back. Allah, even like Robert Forrester didn't. Uh... That's a perfect, that's a perfect analogy right there. I mean, we talked about how Forrester should have been a bigger star. The same thing goes for Tom Atkins. Yeah, he don't have movie star look or your typical movie star looks. But you know what? He holds the screen well when he's on there. He delivers dialogue good. He overacts sometimes, but you know, it, it works and I've always liked everything I've ever seen Atkins in. Uh, obviously, a lot of people out there probably listen to this, love Night of the Creeps. I love Night of the Creeps. I know you like Night of the Creeps. Yep. I mean, that's really a, the, that's the centerpiece of Tom Atkins' movie career, really, is his portrayal in Night of the Creeps. But he's always been good in everything I've ever seen him in, and I really wish he would have... Uh, made more stuff i mean or at least more stuff that people would have seen to admire him i mean you get these b-movie actors sometimes like him and forster and even fred williamson to some degree who came in with the black exploitation craze and stuff i mean these guys are are magnetic and interesting it's just they don't they don't have what hollywood's looking for and it's really a shame because these guys are, are just as good if not better in some cases than some actors i see uh, to this day who are movie stars so it's really a shame he never got bigger than what he was i won't talk much about jamie lee curtis because you pretty much hit on that and she's in this movie but uh, i don't know she She's not really a big factor to me in the film so much, so I don't really go over her. I will go over that uh, it's full of, you know, John Carpenter uh, favorite actors. I mean, I think uh, Nancy Loomis, I think, is in it. Uh, she was in Halloween. She played the girl that uh, got down to her panties in the laundry room. Yeah. I can't remember her name, which is weird because Halloween's one of my favorite movies. But, hey, you know, memories are not that great at this early in the morning. So You remember the, the, the main thing, that she was down to her skivvies. So. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a gentleman. That's what gentlemen remember. Yeah. <laughs> So there you go. Um, and Rob Bottin is involved in this film. He actually plays the main uh, ghost. Uh, he just loved John Carpenter, uh, loved Halloween, and always wanted to work with him. And then later on, he would work with him in the uh, special effects, practical special effects tour de force that is the thing, uh, which might be the greatest practical special effects. Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is. Uh, Measuring kind stick, of a, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he was just, it was amazing. And he always loved Carpenter and always wanted to work with him. Finally got to with the thing. But he uh, did some bit parts in this and stuff. And he played the guy with the hook the uh, and the glowing eyes. You're seeing with glowing eyes at one point. And, uh, you know, that's Botin, you know. I mean, a lot of people say, I know, I have to say Rob Botin because I know a lot of people on podcasts call him Rob Botin. <laughs> yeah, they do. And uh, Botin's a bit of a recluse. You know, he don't really do interviews or anything, but he'll do anything for Carpenter. I mean, he's even on, if you got the thing disc, he's even on that documentary quite prominently. Yeah, he has a pretty significant uh, interview as they're intercutting with other people involved with it, where he's talking about it pretty enthusiastically. Uh, and he actually just further that, he created the worm face. You remember on the lighthouse? Uh, with, yes, uh, yes, the worm face. Yeah, he yep. created that uh, that effect as well. Yeah, he uh, he's an interesting guy. I mean, like I say, he's a bit of a recluse, which is really weird. He's supposedly been trying to get into filmmaking forever to be a director. He just never has really done anything yet, though. I know he was at one point attached to Freddy vs. Jason, which I would have thought, you know, and even though I like Freddy vs. Jason for what it is... Uh, it's not a great film, but I love it for what it is. And uh, Ronnie Yu is great for what he is. I, I would like to have seen uh, Rob Bottin's uh, Freddy vs. Jason. I would have liked to have seen that. I got a feeling it would have been a totally different movie. I, I think it would have been. One thing a lot of people may not know, Ronnie Yu, he did The Bride with White Hair, which is um, a very, it's a classic uh, Hong Kong film, a wuxia film, a swordplay film. And I remember reading something that he didn't actually know much about uh, Jason, the character. And I think... It would have been nice to see Botine or someone who is so entrenched in the American horror landscape 
how they would have tackled that film. You're right. It would have been a really different film. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, I just think if Botine ever gets involved in filmmaking, I think you'll see a little bit of a throwback to the films he kind of worked on and maybe that kind of feel. You'll get some uh, late 70s, early 80s horror film. I mean, this guy, he's, he, you know, he's, his credits are not that numerous, but all of them are interesting. I think uh, he created the uh, legend makeup for Tim Curry, uh, Darkness. He created, you know, what I think is the, I know I get a lot of flack for this, but I think it's the best uh, werewolf transformation is the one in the howling i think the howling is not as good a film as american werewolf in london but i think the transformation is much better in that one and especially when you consider that he didn't have near the amount of money that baker did uh really it's a shame that you know the howling is kind of considered the redheaded stepchild of american werewolf in london and you know baker won an oscar but botin should have won something in my opinion yeah. for that or for the thing i mean it's just kind of silly and if you guys aren't familiar with the howling check it out for that uh that werewolf transformation scene it's pretty impressive when you consider how low budget it was he's a big fan of using uh, condoms for air bladders which work really well under the skin. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. He's a big fan of that. He also did uh, the effects in uh, Total Recall, I believe. I believe he works with Verhoeven quite a bit. In, too, so. in fact, just further to Total Recall, it's a good thing you brought that up because I'd forgotten it until you'd mentioned it. He did win an Oscar for his work on Total Recall. So Yeah, that's right. Kind of a... And I always felt like the Total Recall stuff is really good, but I always felt like that was giving him an Oscar for The Thing and for The Howling and for Legend. It's the Den- these other films he did. It's the Denzel Washington Oscar. They don't give it to him for Malcolm X or, or Hurricane yeah. or Glory. They give it to him for Training Day. It's sort of the same thing. Not to discredit Total Recall, because I think for its time, and that, that may have, I'm pretty sure it predates CGI. It was pretty impressive, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some pretty good animatronic uh, face transformations. Arnold Schwarzenegger suffocating in Mars atmosphere, which is hilarious. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's all you hear. Yeah, and uh, the fat woman opening up, which goes, two weeks, two yeah. weeks. Yeah, so there's some good stuff in there. Of course, you know, big Verhoeven fans. I know I'm a Verhoeven fan, so hopefully we'll cover some Verhoeven at some point. I like Verhoeven. I'd be glad to. Okay, so that's pretty much all I got other than uh, the score. I'll go back to the score as well. This, uh, and I know I already talked about it a little bit about it being underrated because uh, Halloween's so iconic. I implore people to listen to this score closely. This one is probably Carpenter's most interesting score. Uh, as me and you have talked about, he kind of uses like foghorn-like uh, synthesizer uh, boat-type noises in the score. And uh, the piano piece at the beginning is, is hauntingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of his best work, it's not... Uh, kind of credited as much as some of his other themes. I think even most people know the Escape from New York theme before they know this one. Yeah. But uh, this is probably, well, I'll go ahead and say it. it, it I, Halloween is what it is. It's iconic. A minute you hear it, you know what it is. But this is probably my favorite uh, John Carpenter score. Uh, it just, it works with the movie perfectly. You know, he he's always been a fan of the stings, as he calls them. You know, these high-pitched stings that kind of help amplify the scares he uses them really well in this film too and the use of sound editing in this film is really good too there's moments of silence before a loud noise or a loud uh you know a loud scare or something that are very 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 well used uh i mean this is just good stuff i mean this is without a doubt and i know we're running long here so i don't want to go too much further in depth here but this is without a doubt i mean you've talked about this this is quintessential genre movie viewing if you have not seen the fog you owe it to yourself to immediately stop anything else you're going to watch and watch the fog this is one of those movies that uh should be held in high regard especially among the horror community as one of the uh one of the great films and that's just that's just my opinion but i'd say you might agree with me on that yeah i do i'll just mention a few things very quickly uh as well because i know we're running long did you have anything else before i jump back in um, no, no, nothing else other than uh, Carpenter is working again, which I'm glad to report. Uh, uh, he is going to be making a prison slash horror type film with Nicolas Cage uh, 
called Scared Straight. That's sort Hopefully of, they'll change that title. But Yeah, that's a classic good news, bad news. The good news is Carpenter's working again. The bad news is with Nicolas Cage. We'll talk about Nick, our Nicolas Cage-Peter Fonda comparison, I guess, another time because we're running a little late. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I wish Dean Cundey was working more. It's a shame that in this day and age, maybe it's he just doesn't want to, but... You know, when I brought up his uh, his resume, it's like nothing. Nothing. He's hasn't done anything uh, in a long time, and it's a shame. A um, little bit of trivia: part of the film was shot where uh, the Hitchcock classic "The Birds" was shot. Uh, the scene with the boats in the marina, just below that, was the restaurant from "The Birds." Uh, again, it wasn't. Yeah, I believe also to add to that trivia, I don't know if uh, where you got that, but I also believe that Carpenter ended up moving there and living there, and he still lives there now. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And also, I think Village of the Damned, his remake, I think a lot of that was shot in the same town as well. It was, and he still eats at the restaurant uh, that's just off to the side where there's a small scene with Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh Um, Yeah, yeah, like we'd said, it was a nice touch to have Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis in a film together as a horror fan. It's another one of those little Easter eggs that I know you and I both really like. But they didn't cop out and make the mother and daughter or make... Uh, Nancy Loomis, the Jamie Lee Curtis character, and Jamie Lee, the helper, the assistant to uh, Janet Lee, which would have been sort of the easy or obvious choice. So it was nice to see that. Um, I thought the lighthouse they, they found was just great. And in listening to the commentary, I heard that it was the second foggiest point in America. So I thought that yeah. was, uh, it was pretty, they were pretty fortunate to have that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many great scenes. The scene with them in the mud, in the truck, with the ghost closing in. I mean, it's been done a zillion times, but because Carpenter's a master, it still gives you a lot of tension uh, in terms of the film. Uh, yeah, the cast was first class. We've mentioned the mustache, or Son's mustache in this film, Atkins, Jamie Lee, Curtis, uh, Janet Lee, Adrian Barbeau. You got Hal Holbrook, who I really like. I mean, just a great, great ensemble cast. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a prime example. The film with the reshoots cost $1.1 million. Now, okay, you can say that's 25, 30 years ago, but it just goes to show you that you don't need money to make a great film. You need to have skill and creativity when you do something like that. I really wish someone would give Carpenter $5 million and let him make his own film the way he wanted uh, nowadays. It's a shame. That is true. And also, I, I believe we got an uh, email from uh, Naked Eskimo about the fog. If you could, you can go ahead and uh, read that now instead of putting that into the feedback. Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. This is from... Because he uh, had some interesting things to say about the budget as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'll read this. This is from Naked Eskimo. Uh, the title, of course, is The Fog is Coming. Um, Tom Atkins is the man, which we absolutely agree with. Jamie Lee is freaking hot. She is. I was more of the in the Barbo camp, but uh, in any event, she's hot. She's hot in a very tomboyish way. Yeah, uh, that you know. But there is a lot of good. Uh, well, I don't want to sound misogynistic. But there's a lot of good big-breasted women in this film. Yeah, there definitely is. Uh, Carpenter was king in the late '70s, early '80s. Funny enough, I saw the fog when I was far too young to be seeing this junk. We used to live in an apartment complex with large pond, small lake behind it. Uh, that resulted in a lot of extremely foggy walks to the bus stop to go to school. I just knew the monsters were in there awaiting, and when I was a kid, I didn't understand the movie well enough to know why the ghosts were killing everyone, or even that the ghosts, or the, even that they were ghosts, probably. So yeah, after the fog, walking through the pea soup we'd get in the mornings was scary as hell. Yeah, that that would have been pretty, pretty freaky deaky uh, as a child, and I can't believe I said freaky deaky. Uh, now I watch it and I instead marvel at how effective it was in a time before CGI and directors with no real vision, i.e. most of the hacks making movies these days. The atmosphere in the original Fog is absolutely palpable. I'm watching it in the dark still kind of gives me the creeps. The Fog and Halloween are just more proof that the best way to go to get a good horror movie is to hamstring a good director and tell him he has to make do with what he's got. Then just sit back and watch the creativity boil 
naked Eskimo. Yeah, it's something you I just touched on. I couldn't agree more. Sometimes you're better to have your kind of back to the wall and make do with what you have as opposed to here's uh, $50 million, have at it. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's been proven over and over and over again, especially in genre cinema, that a lot of directors make their best films uh, earlier in their career when they're more, you know, when their budgets are more shoestring, when they're more, when their hands are tied more with the, the money they have. Uh, it's not to say that they can't make good movies with money. It's just to say that uh, you can see the creativity come through more. So I couldn't agree with uh, Naked Esky more on that one and... Uh, He's, he's totally right, obviously. Yeah, no, I agree. And just one final thing before we get to our reviews. Uh, Darwin Jostin, who is the main character in Assault on Precinct 13, <laughs> yeah. he has a nice little cameo as a doctor that was performing the autopsy on one of the fishermen. I thought that was a nice touch, and I'll get into that scene actually in a moment here. So I just wanted to mention that. Alrighty, so I picked this film. I'll go ahead and let you uh, go over your MVT, your make or break, and your score. Okay. Uh, firstly, I was really, really, really torn about my MVT on this film because I think as much as I love the ensemble and I like uh, a lot of the other stuff, I think as you and I both sort of feel this way, there was two people kind of running neck and neck um, for MVT. I was going to say Dean Cundy because his lighting, his cinematography, as usual, was absolutely first class. Um, and I was I was really teetering towards that until I was actually, of all places, in the ba- bathroom, which I guess I tend to do a lot of my best thinking there. And it kind of came to me that, hang on a second, not only did John Carpenter direct this film... But he also did the score. And as you had mentioned, I personally feel that it is John Carpenter's best score. Uh, Because people say the thing, well, that was done by Sergio Leone. So, you know, that's really good. And Halloween's great. Sergio Leone, that would be Ennio Morricone. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. That's right. (laughs) Ennio Morricone that that did the score. My apologies. Um, But, yeah, I mean, just I think it's his best score. So, I mean, my MVT has to be Carpenter between the double duty of directing and the score he, uh, he created for this film. Uh, honorable mention goes to Tommy Lee Wallace. Uh, he's a guy that uh, did a lot of production design for the film. Uh, he played one of the uh, the ghosts. Uh, he did a lot. He had a real hand in a lot of the dirty work in this film. And although he's not my MVT, I just wanted to give a little credit to him because he didn't even get paid to do the acting. He did in it, and I think it's people like that sometimes that are the backbone of a of a film production. So I tip my hat to him for the hard work he put in. Yeah, I believe he went on to direct uh, Halloween Three. I believe. Yes, I believe you're right which also has the Atkins in it, which is uh, pretty good in its own right. Maybe we can get around to giving it the proper treatment it deserves because I think it's unfairly criticized. The make-or-break scene for me was, again, this was real tough to pick. Um, the scene in the, in the autopsy room where, it was, I guess it was more the shot that I liked than the scene where uh, the camera's underneath the gurney and you see the feet come down, Jamie Lee's in the background, the feet are in the foreground, and uh, the, the, uh, the dead fisherman kind of gets up towards her. I thought that was really good, but... The scene that really, uh, for me, was the most impressive was near the very end when everything is just at its absolute height in terms of um, the fishermen, or excuse me, the uh, the lepers uh, wreaking havoc and revenge was when Stevie Wayne, Adrian Barbo's character, is on top of the lighthouse and there's two of the ghosts circling her uh, with sharp instruments in hand um, and she's kind of trying to defend herself. And just the shot, the overhead shot they use and just that whole scene itself, I mean... She's on top of a lighthouse. I don't think the tension could get any higher than it did at that moment. So that's uh, that's my make or break scene. And uh, as a piece of trivia, that lighthouse was from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, mm. 
Yeah, that lighthouse is still there. Supposedly, I would like to go and visit that, get some photos taken. If we ever, yeah, if we ever go out to uh, F thir- or the uh, Thirteen Scar Studios, maybe we can take a trip out there to see the lighthouse. Yeah, I'm afraid if I get to the uh, lighthouse, the F thirteen might push me off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of my rating, um, I give this film an eight point two five again with the quarter ratings, an eight point two five out of ten. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. I think it's criminally, criminally underrated and underappreciated by genre fans. I highly implore all of you to go back and visit it. It's an example of a ghost story done very well. So that's my rating, and I'll kick it over to you. All right, so I'll go over my stuff. My make or break scenes. Is basically the scene on the boat with the three fishermen uh, getting drunk, listening to Stevie Wayne. I love that whole, I guess it's probably about five minutes. It's not just one scene so much, but it's just like one little, you know, little mini movie. Uh, really good stuff. Good use of the fog and lighting and uh, and the uh, ominous silhouettes and, and all that stuff. I mean, it's really, really good stuff. Uh, Carpenter and Cundy at, their peak, at the peak of their powers, really, if you think about it. Uh, really good stuff. It's funny you mentioned that gurney scene. Uh, Carpenter revisited that in the thing, didn't he, with the gurney and the under the gurney shot, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think you're right. Yeah, he revi- I just thought about that when you were talking about it because I was thinking about the thing, and he did revisit that. Him and Cundy both did. So I guess they felt like they didn't get it quite right the first time. They go back and do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's pretty much my make or break. I mean, that's a great little moment with uh, Buck Flowers and a couple other actors I don't know. Uh, but there's some really good use of lighting and uh, silhouettes and. And things there and sound it's, it's it's all right in that little montage it's very very good good miniature very, very good, good miniature work uh, in that scene as well as others as well yeah much better than the uh, snow globe with the water from the tap <laughs> running over it that we saw in Raiders of Atlantis yeah. let's put it that way <laughs> exactly and oddly enough I think Raiders from Atlantis came out after this film so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> alright uh, and as far as my MVT goes I just went the other way that you went Basically, I was battling, battling, battling. Who do I like? Who do I want for this to be my MVT for this film? Well, I went with Dean Cundy because, not to say Carpenter isn't all over this film because he is, but because Cundy doesn't get enough credit, I felt like, you know, I'm going to throw his name out there. He's one of the greatest cinematographers of all time, period. I mean, there's just nobody. Of the modern era, there might not be hardly anybody except for the guy that uh, I know that uh, shoots the... uh, What's, what's the name of those uh, Chinese films? Chungking Express and stuff? What's the name of that guy? Oh, Christopher, Christopher, Christopher Doyle? Doyle. He's Australian. Yeah, he's excellent. He's very good. Roger Deakins is very good. I believe the Coen brothers use him. And uh, I think Peter Weir might use him too sometimes. I, I can't remember exactly who I'm talking about here. I'm just kind of going off the cuff. But Cundy is one of the great cinematographers in film history. When when it's all said and done, if you go through and you name top ten cinematographers, Cundy is up there. I mean, he's in my top five. And uh, he's just one of the greatest. And he's really influenced a lot of my you know favorite type of visuals that i've seen in films growing up because cundy was all over everything when i was growing up so that's really the one i wanted to go to for my mvt because i wanted to give him the credit uh but i did i did battle with it between him and carpenter because they they really are uh you know laurel and hardy or whatever you want to call it you know leopold and Loeb, whatever you want to call these two guys uh working together and i almost said you know screw it i'm just gonna make my mvt them two guys working together but i just want to single out cundy because he's a great guy great work not that i know him but you know Hey, if Cundy's listening to this, I'll, I'll interview him for the show. So I would love to. Contact us somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as far as my rating goes, uh, I'm going to give this film just a little bit higher rating than you. I'm going to go 8.5. This is, uh, you call it a masterpiece. I call it uh, I call it a masterpiece within this genre, a near masterpiece of film overall. Really, you can't go wrong with it. It is it is one of the great films, and you owe it to yourself to check it out. I don't care what anybody says; it it just it has a great feel to it, and uh, I love watching it every time I've watched it. I probably I probably watched this movie four or five times a year. I've probably seen it twenty times in my lifetime, probably more. And every time I watch it, I love it. 
So there you go. That's all I got to say about it. And I believe that's all we got to say about the fog, 8.5 and 8.25, and uh, highly recommend. Highly, highly. Rec- run out and buy this film. Yeah, don't even rent this. Buy this. Because if you're a horror movie fan, uh, you'll love it. I don't have any doubts. Yeah, and it's not like if, if anyone sees that it's being bought on DVD, they can think, oh, let's go remake it. People are buying the old one. It's already been done. So if anything, you know, maybe it'll make good old John Carpenter happy that uh, more people are appreciating the fog for the excellence that it is. And with that, we're going to go to our last break, and then we're going to come back with some feedback and things. So we'll go to our last break now. Ah, you kids today with your internet porn, discussion forums, and illegal movie torrents. At CinemaDiabolica.com, we've got something way better than all that. We've got overly opinionated, offensive commentary on films that we more than likely didn't pay for. I guess you could say it's like the entire internet all on one site. Except not. Yo, son, CinemaDiabolica.com is like the whole internet on one site. Except not. Holla. CinemaDiabolica.com back Some good stuff there it's uh halloween uh i know me and uh, f13 talked about halloween before in the past so i thought i'd throw a little halloween on there uh, old school german metal there keeper the seven keys part two the album so highly recommend okay you're gonna turn it down get into some feedback here i know we have uh one email uh, i believe it's from naked eskimo again <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. It is. Um, I know we had kind of thrown the the uh, the request out that if anyone knew of any other good biker films, uh, to maybe mention one to us. And he sends us one that's called Beyond the Law. Oh, he sent us a, a link to uh, the description of it. It's actually one with Charlie Sheen, and uh, he's in full beard and sort of long flowing hair in it. Um, it's funny he mentioned that because I remember as we were doing the podcast, my dad had coincidentally seen this film not too long ago because he went to a bike rally coincidentally and, um, cause he just got his bike license and whatever. And uh, someone had said this film was good and I think my father has it, so I'm going to have to check it out. But anyway, uh, getting to his email, uh, he sends us the link to it and he says, I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't remember how actiony it is, but Charlie Sheen in a biker flick has to be worth at least a watch or worth a watch sometime. Cobra was very much a biker character, in my opinion, even if he doesn't rise, ride one. Uh, as for Arnie, you did get the two Terminator flicks, where he always seemed to end up on a bike of some kind. Van Damme did a film called Desert Heat that was essentially Yojimbo, Fistful of Dollars remake that wasn't horrible. I never seen I got, that. I got to see this now, because I didn't know it was a Yojimbo, Fistful of Dollars remake type film. With Van Damme, I'm in. I haven't seen it either, so that's uh, that sounds very, very compelling to see. 
uh, he does ride a bike in that as well. So while not truly biker films, that's probably the best you'll get. I can't really think of anything else right now. But if I do, I will pop off over more emails. And then he says, I think we sort of teased this, speaking about vanity. He says, vanity, last dragon, word, naked Eskimo. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's yeah no, he knows where we're going, don't he? I think he does, and there's no secret. It's uh, one of my all-time favorite films. Anyone who's been on the message boards, it's very apparent as to who my uh, avatar is, and I know you're a huge fan <laughs> of it. And that's coming down the pipes within the next handful of episodes or so. So, Yeah, coming very soon. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, that's all we got in terms of uh, emails. I don't know if you want to kick it over to the voicemails now. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll kick it over there. Um what I wanted, I, there seemed like there was something else I wanted to add to that email. He said it says something about a biker flick that I might know something about. What do you say? Terminator films and then uh, Desert Heat. What was the one before the Terminator films? Oh, he had mentioned Cobra. He thought that Marion oh, Cobretti yeah. was very much a biker <laughs> character. We plan on covering Cobra at some point. I know Bill had mentioned that it's one of his favorite uh, guilty pleasures or something like that on OTC. So uh, uh, I definitely want to do Cobra at some point. It's some great '80s action cheese. Maybe one of the maybe one of the pinnacles of '80s action cheese. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's probably on the Mount Rushmore of '80s action. I <laughs> yeah. other than the dramatic uh, excellence of Rocky, uh, I think it might be one of my definitely one of my favorite Stallone films. Yeah, love the toothpick, Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's see here. Uh, we'll get a voicemail going here. You, some of you might be familiar with this gentleman. How's it going, gentlemen? It's uh, it's Miles from show show um just wanted to call in because uh i really enjoyed the first two episodes quite a bit and uh i'm always happy on shows like this where you guys uh do the underground stuff when i've actually seen you know some of the movies that you guys review so that's cool and um you know i i did have a question for mr large william though uh i am about like five minutes from driving to la to go see a press screening for let the right one in and I know you were up in Toronto. Uh, I can't remember if this was one of the ones that you saw, but um, if you have, can you give us all a, uh, a brief little review on that film? Anyway, keep up the good work, guys. Uh, I'm really enjoying the show, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Yeah. All right, so that, that was uh, Miles there. Uh, he uh, was going to see Let the Right One In. Uh, you want to talk about that at all? I don't think you had an opportunity to see that in Toronto, am I right? Uh, regrettably, I didn't, and unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to. Uh, very quickly, uh, thanks for the voicemail, Miles. Uh, very happy to hear from you. Um, Let the Right One In is going to be playing at the Toronto After Dark Film Festival, which is uh, coming up October 17th to the 24th. It's a great, great festival that's grown each year uh, here in Toronto. They have a zombie walk, and in fact... The opening night gala for that is Let the Right One In uh, as well. I think they're going to have Tokyo Gore Police, a Mirage Man, which I've posted a trailer up on the uh, the message boards, uh, Red, which has Brian Cox. It's also it's an, it's an uh, adaptation from a Jack Ketchum novel. I have actually seen Red. Ah, did you enjoy it? Uh, I did, but it's a film about... Uh, uh, I'm not giving anything away. It's actually a story about a man who loses his comrade, his dog, and... Uh, it's a little too brutal for me. It's not that it's a brutal film, but I'm a dog lover, and I had a hard time getting through it. But uh, I do recommend, if you don't have a problem with that, uh, you'll probably like the film. It's actually a really good little revenge movie, and uh, Cox is fucking awesome in it, and so is uh, uh, Tom Sizemore. Ah, Very good in it. Good old Tommy Sizemore. He stepped out of the meth lab to make another film, I guess. 
Yeah, I think he um, might have been in the meth lab while he was making this film. Let's that, just put it that way. That, Check out the performance. Yeah, that wouldn't be surprising. Yeah, I wanted to see that too. But getting back to Let the Right One In, Miles. Yeah, sadly, I haven't seen it yet. I remember a long time ago I posted a trailer for it on the Cinema Diabolica message board just saying how it had a lot of buzz around it. Um, and I'm really, really anxious to see it. But I don't know if I'm going to be able to uh, go to the festival this year because my wife's due to give birth on the 17th. So even if she gives birth on the 17th, I don't think it's right of me to go see horror movies down town well she has our baby uh not a week out of the womb so yeah yeah let us know how it is call in miles give us a review because uh you always have first class taste and sort of steered us towards shockma and uh, we tend to have very similar sensibilities so call in give us a review on it i'd love to hear what you thought of it shockma (laughs) (laughs) i would like you to call in and give us a little review of it because i'm interested in it i'm not a big fan of vampire films and i hear this is a vampire type like film and i would like to hear some more about it uh because i probably won't get a chance to see it for quite some time so would like to hear that okay so uh the next voicemail is from sean actually sean called in twice so i'm just going to play both these voicemails back to back and we'll get to his uh answers here hang on or we'll answer his questions hopefully (laughs) Hey, the Golian Samurai. It's uh, Sean from Chicago calling again. Just got done listening to episode three. And, uh, of course, I just got done listening to episode two as well, immediately before that. <laughs> just wanted to uh, mention a, a few things. Uh, number one, how disappointed I am as well that Robert Forster is not a gigantic star. I always, uh, the first time I remember seeing him was in a Disney film called The Black Hole. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. amazing in that. And, uh, of course, um, I believe it's medium cool. He's great in that. And later on in Jackie Brown, it just seemed like uh, whoever his agent was just couldn't let him capitalize on his career. Or maybe it just was that Jackie Brown was it was a disappointment. But I love Jackie Brown. As do I. And uh, you guys are doing a fantastic show so far. I actually bought uh, A Bittersweet Life from Amazon. have it in my bag now. I'm waiting to watch it. And uh, sounds fantastic. And the director is, uh, who directed A Bittersweet Life. His new film is actually premiering at the Chicago Film Festival, so I got tickets for that. and go see that. Hopefully I can call in with a report on it. I'm jealous, um, as am I. Another thing I wanted to mention was... Uh, fuck, I don't remember, but uh, hopefully <laughs> re- if I do, I'll call back. Yeah, he remembers. Anyway, you guys are doing a, a great job. I'm really, really loving the show. best thing I like about it is that uh, it's covering films that I haven't heard about in other podcasts, and uh, that makes me happy. It gets more things for me to watch, so... Thanks again for doing the show, you guys, and uh, great job. Talk to you soon. Hey, hey uh, Big Williams. He remembers. Uh, Sean from Chicago calling again. I finally remember what I wanted to talk to you guys about. There was a silly action movie starring one of my favorite actors, uh, Fred Ward. Uh, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. I was wondering uh, if you guys had seen it or uh, you know, if, uh, if you were thinking about covering that movie because I know it's uh, not universally loved, but not many people talk about it. I thought it was a pretty good slice of 80s cheese. Uh, thanks again, guys, for listening, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for the voicemails, uh, Remo Williams. Well, first let me say that uh, I'm a jealous bastard and uh, that you're getting ready to see uh, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, uh, possibly uh, a film that I'm wanting to see so badly that I would probably step on my mother's head to get to the uh, ticket window <laughs> to see it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really amped to see that, and it's a shame. I didn't get to it at the Toronto Film Festival because it was a gala screening and it was the day I was working, so... I didn't get to go, so I'm also very, very jealous. you got to call in and let us know how you like that. Yeah, and also let us know what you thought of A Bittersweet Life. I know Matt Suzaka got a hold of a copy of it as well. and He didn't call in this week, but hopefully Matt will call in and let us know what he thought of it. Uh, I know he'll be at the Rock and Shock with the OTC guys this weekend, so we'll see what happens there. That could be for some interesting uh, banter come the next OTC episode. Anyway, uh, yeah, Remo Williams. Now, 
some people call it 80s cheese. I call Remo Williams a good fucking time. So <laughs> I do plan on covering uh, Remo Williams at some point, and I know uh, Willie hasn't seen it in quite some time, and uh, he would like to revisit it as well. Uh, we both love Fred Ward, so there you go. I mean, you got anything you'd like to add about Remo? Uh, no, just what you said. Uh, I haven't seen it in a very, very long time. I'd love to. And, uh, yeah, it's funny he mentions that because, like you had just said, you and I were talking about Fred Ward not too long ago, so it's going to be interesting to revisit uh, revisit this film at some point in the future. And, yeah, good stuff, Remo Williams. Very oh, yeah. Good stuff. One of the great movie posters of all time. Oh, it definitely is. That's what I remember. The only thing that's very clear to me about the film is the poster with him hanging off the uh, one of the um, the points on the Statue of Liberty's crown. Yes, and uh, to get you amped up, I do believe throughout the film, I think uh, Ward wears a members-only black leather jacket. So <laughs> get ready, baby. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, so uh, we got one last voicemail here from uh, this gentleman. Hey, what's up, guys? This is 789 calling from Boston. Uh, really digging the new show. Just wanted to uh, say congrats on getting it up there. Just had a couple uh, comments for you. One, I guess the question, I'm not sure if you mentioned this already, but um, I was curious how you guys met, seeing how you're so far apart. Um, I don't know if there's an interesting story there, but uh, that's about it. And uh, Oh, just wanted to say congrats and uh, enjoying the show. Thanks. It's Thanks for calling in, 789. Uh, yeah, that's the first time I've heard him call in. I don't think I've heard him call in to any other shows. I don't know. Maybe he has. but uh, It's nice to put a voice uh, to it. Yeah, it's great to hear your, uh, hear your voice there. He's wanting to know how we ended up meeting each other. Well, that pretty much goes into some things we talked about in the beginning, but uh, if you want to add to it, well, I'll sit here and listen to yeah, it. Yeah, I would, actually. You're being a little coy. We actually, both of us, it was uh, the summer of, or excuse me, the fall of uh, 74. Both of us were uh, hired ranch hands, uh, hired to herd sheep in the mountains together, and uh, thus began a lifelong uh, tender relationship. <laughs> Um, yeah, I like to call I call that whole episode of my life uh, Bareback Mountain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, we actually we met on the boards uh, through our love of uh, Cinema Diabolica and OTC. We just we'd get on threads, uh, and it just seemed like we were always, always, always in the same wavelength. Our love of Bronson, our love of uh, '80s action, our love of Asian films, samurai films, uh, Kurosawa stuff. And it just it got to the point where you know I knew if I started a thread or Samurai knew if he started a thread that the other guy was going to throw his two cents in and kind of back him up until one day you know we kind of messaged each other and said hey why don't we do a podcast and uh, thus began a uh, a beautiful friendship and working relationship yes similar to Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger so. exactly there you go <laughs> maybe not that similar but somewhere along those lines no it was really it really goes back to what we were saying in the beginning that's why we implore you guys to get involved at the pop syndicate boards because it creates a community uh and friendships that uh, hopefully will last you guys for quite some time i know i'm pretty tight with bill uh and ryan at this point because ryan's on the boards quite a bit now f obviously f13 dz i'm good friends with those guys and, and then willie and me we just met on there and um uh, you know we both love podcasts we both always wanted to do one but we never had that other or uh quote-unquote significant other to do the show with and uh we found each other there you and that's go. Just really how it uh, really came about and uh it's been a great experience so far and i've made a lot of good friends who love to talk about movies and uh hopefully i'll make a lot more that's really what i hope the boards over pop syndicate.com slash forums i hope that's what helps us is uh making more friends who love talking about movies and uh, that's what we love 
Yeah, because let's face it, being a genre film fan, you don't always have that outlet to talk about obscure films. Is the and the boards are a great opportunity for you to talk with like minded people. So again, I highly implore everyone to get over there. It's a friendly group of people, so check it out. And that pretty much rounds out our feedback. I'm gonna go ahead and go over what we're gonna cover next week because last week with the technical difficulties we had we forgot to mention. So I'm gonna go ahead and throw it out there. What I'm picked for next week's show is a little film called Turkey Shoot from Brian Trenchard Smith. Uh little ozploitation uh to say the least also known as escape 2000 which is how you might be able to find the uh, actual film on dvd i know netflix has it good little piece of ozploitation and i uh, can't wait to talk about it yeah yeah it does sound uh, i'm really excited to see this one too so uh as luck would have it i picked it up for 25 cents on vhs <laughs> there you go along with a few other films we'll be covering here in the near future um my pick is a very it's something i've mentioned actually to the OTC and Cinema Diabolica guys uh, that I would have liked to have seen them cover at some point. It's a very, very underappreciated black exploitation film from 1973 called Trouble Man. The soundtrack is done by Marvin Gaye, so you know you're you're good right off the bat. And actually, this is where the term Mr. T came from. The character's name in it is Mr. T. The Mr. T we know ripped it off from the original Mr. T, which is uh, Robert Hooks' character in Trouble Man. So that's, uh, that's the film I picked. Yeah, and I've never seen this film, so uh, I am very, very excited to see this movie because I have never seen it. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about it, and obviously I've heard you talk about it in voicemails to uh, CD and OT so I am very excited to see this. So next week's show should be really, really great. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. All right, with that, I'm going to go ahead and... All right, so another episode is coming on. Episode four felt good. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. I want to go over uh, some of the other shows we highly recommend. Uh, Big Red Podcast, BigRedPodcast.com, uh, Cinema Diabolica, CinemaDiabolica.com. Oh, uh, outside the cinema at otc.com uh, I'm actually on the new episode of Outside the Cinema so uh, if you didn't have reason to listen to it before listen to it now because I'm on there <laughs> also I would like to uh, mention Destroy the Brain DestroyTheBrainOnline.com you heard Andy at uh, the intro there he did an intro for us I appreciate that Andy uh, also Night of the Living Podcast NLTLP.com Chinstroker vs. Punter Chinstroker vs. Punter Dipodomatic.com uh, Mondo Movie the Mondo Movie dot dot com uh, show 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 dot uh, mail order zombie at mail order zombie dot com uh, brother D show make sure you check that out also you can catch our show at uh, ggtmc.libsyn.com. dot com uh, that's our home website for the time being hopefully you'll uh, you'll dig that uh, also uh, want to make sure you guys uh, head over to the boards I put up a board for listener content uh, not the contest so much but Please, uh, if you can call in a voicemail singing any song you would like, I would appreciate that. Uh, and you'll get to uh, pick the two films we cover in an episode in November. We're going to do that every month. So uh, not the singing thing, but we're going to cover listener content once a month. So that's what we'd like to do. Also, you can send us emails at midnightcinema at gmail.com. It's M-I-D-N-I-T-E cinema at gmail.com. And also shoot your voicemails over 206-666-5207. Uh, hopefully that music in the background wasn't too loud. I apologize for that. Uh, that's a cover of a uh, of the Trinity theme that we used toward the end of our show that uh, F-13 gave me, and I fucking love it, so I keep it up quite loud. But that's pretty much it, guys. Uh, I'm going to cut this down a little bit lower, and until next week, uh, have a good time, and uh, make sure you watch some good fucking movies. 
Yeah, uh, all I have to say really is uh, I want to thank Channer Bananer, my dear, dear friend, for posting a comment on our website. So good looking at you there, Channer. <laughs> and uh, that's all I really got, guys. Thanks again for the support. Hopefully you'll send us a lot of voicemails and emails. And adios. Adios.